Let me ask you a question. What is your ambition in, in life? I mean, what's your ultimate goal? I mean, for you, what would be the ultimate achievement? Well, today we're going to find out how the Apostle Paul would answer that question, how he did answer that question. We'll find it in Philippians chapter 3. And so if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out, uh, uh, pull up Philippians on your devices, uh, we're going to unpack a good portion of this chapter today. He begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord, familiar words for the Apostle Paul. In fact, the dominant theme in Philippians is this concept of joy. I mean, here's a guy who is under arrest, waiting for trial, uh, knowing that the possibility could be his uh, ultimate execution, but yet he is still uh, radiating this contagious joy. I mean, how is that possible? How is it possible that the happiest man in Rome is a prisoner? Well, I think it's because for Paul, his joy did, did not depend and it was not dependent upon favorable circumstances. You see, he, his joy was anchored in something else. It was in Jesus Christ. I think too often we have the idea that if our circumstances could change, then that would mean that I could be happier. I would have more joy in my life. It's always about the changing of circumstances. I mean, we think that if we could, uh, you know, change jobs, we would be happier. Maybe if we changed our house or changed our spouse or whatever other thing you might come up with, if we could just change the circumstance that I could have joy. And I think so often when we think about the changes, it's always about this idea, if I could just get something bigger, something better. But the reality is that what we really need is a bigger view of Jesus. Because if you have a great view of Jesus, then you're able to find joy even in unfavorable circumstances. And so in verse 3, I want us to begin reading there. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this first phrase, this we are the circumcision, just means that he's addressing believers. He's addressing individuals who know Christ. He includes himself in that we are the circumcision. And then he begins to list for us the marks of those who know Christ. So let's, let's look at those for a moment. He said, first of all, true believers worship by the Spirit of God. Now, this isn't in the sense of, uh, of being in a building and there's music playing and, and uh, you know, it's a scheduled gathering time and everybody is, is there to worship in that sense. But it's more in the sense of Romans chapter 12, where our entire lives, everything that is a part of us is surrendered to God in service as an act of worship. It's that everything we do, we do in submission to the Holy Spirit. It's the walking in the Spirit that the Apostle Paul so often talks about. You know, we know in Romans chapter 8, Paul said that if you are a believer, if you're a child of God, if Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you. And so for the real people of God, the true believers... 
those who, who give their lives in worship to God, he's saying they live their lives in submission to the Spirit. They worship or they live their lives in submission to the Spirit of God. So that simply means that we parent in submission to the Holy Spirit, that we spouse in submission to the Holy Spirit. We work and we manage in submission to the Holy Spirit. We student Whatever the role in life is, whatever it is that we do, we hopefully do that as an act of worship to God in submission to the leadership and the direction of the Holy Spirit. He also says in that verse 3 that, that uh, those who are true believers glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is obvious, uh, hopefully, that uh, everyone who knows Christ makes much of Christ in every aspect of our lives, that, uh, that we should boast in Christ. I mean, should God ever give you a platform to speak, whatever it might be and wherever it might be, then what Paul is encouraging us is that we should use that platform to boast in Christ, to speak about Christ, that we should live every moment in our lives in, in, in the way that Paul put it in Galatians chapter 6, where he said, may I never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, let him who boasts, do what? Boast in the Lord. So the one who knows Christ worships by the Spirit and glories in Christ. But then in that third verse, he also says, that they put their confidence in Christ and not in the flesh. Let's look at beginning with verse 4. Let's read through verse 6. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecuted the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so after saying that, those who are true worshipers of God, those are who truly follow Christ, don't put their trust and their hope in the flesh, he admits that, in fact, that's exactly how he lived a portion of his life that he put his confidence in, in his hope in all kinds of fleshly things. And so in that passage we just read, he then begins to list them. It's almost like the, the, the resume of his former life. These are the things he said, I anchored my hope and my confidence in these things. Let's, let's look at, see what they are. He first see, he said, I put my trust in ritual. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. He's just, say, just saying, I'm an eighth-dayer. Uh, I'm not new to this thing. I uh, am an eighth-day Hebrew. I bear the marks of the Hebrew ritual. The danger for some uh, believers today is that if we're not careful, we can put more confidence and more trust in our religious practices and our rituals than in Jesus Christ himself. Number two, he says that I used to put my confidence in my race. In verse 5, he says, I'm of the nation of Israel. That literally means of the race of Israel. 
But if we read the book of Acts, we, we know that God shows no partiality to race or to ethnicity or to cultural history, but that what Scripture teaches us is that he's saving a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so Paul says, don't put your confidence and your hope in your race like I used to do. Third, he says, I used to put my trust in rank. Verse 5, the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he's saying, I'm not from some lesser tribe or some discredited tribe. I am from the great tribe, the honored tribe of Israel. I think, again, we, if we're not careful, have the temptation to think that because someone has special status, Maybe they're extremely gifted in the arts or athletically or or maybe they're highly successful or they're wealthy or they've attained some level, elevated level of social status. We look at those individuals and if we're not careful, we think that somehow those individuals get graded on the curve by God. But the Apostle Paul says, I used to find comfort in my rank, but not anymore. For he said, I used to find hope in tradition. Verse 5, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, I am the real deal. Fifty said, I used to put my trust and anchor my hope in my morality. He said, as to the law of Pharisee. He's simply saying, I, I made up the law. He said, I, I made up so much law, I didn't really know where the real law was anymore. And I think, again, today there is a danger that too many people are putting their hope and their confidence in their morality, in this concept of being a good person. But understand this, morality may keep you out of jail, but morality will not get you into heaven. You see, it's just not sufficient. Paul isn't advocating for immorality, but again, he is just saying it's not sufficient. It's not enough. I think most individuals, you see our lives on this continuum, this continuum from from a, a serial killer at the bottom to a saint at the top. And if we can just find ourselves somewhere on that continuum where we're better than somebody else, then that means that we're going to be okay. But Paul says, no, that's not the truth. He goes on and says, I used to put my confidence in my sincerity. Verse 6, he says, as to zeal, I I was a persecutor of the church. I think we hear this a lot in culture today. We hear individuals say, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But the problem with that is that, you, is that you can be sincerely wrong. Now, let me illustrate it this way for you. Do you know who Jim Marshall is? You'd probably have to be you know, somewhere around my age to know right off the top of your head who Jim Marshall is. Well, let me tell you who he was. Jim Marshall played defensive end for the Minnesota Vikings for 18 years. And during that period of time, he, uh, he had tremendous accomplishments. When he retired, uh, he held the record for the most consecutive games played. That record has since been broken. But he holds still today the record for the most fumbles recovered in a career. When he retired, they retired his jersey. They put him in the ring of honor uh, in Minnesota. And so he's a legend there. But let me show you what he is most famous 
four. Kilmer driving for the first down, losing the football. It's picked up by Jim Marshall, who's running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way. And he's running it into the end zone the wrong way. Thinks he scored a touchdown. He has scored a safety. You see, Jim Marshall was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He thought he was scoring a touchdown for his team, but instead he scored a safety for the other team. It's not enough to be sincere. Paul says, I used to put my confidence, my hope, my trust in my sincerity, but that was wrong. And then he says, I used to put my hope and trust in rule keeping. Verse 7, he says, as for righteousness, which is in the Lord found blameless. So Paul says, that's what I used to trust in. That's what I anchored my hope in. But then in verse 7, he begins to pivot. He makes a change. He says, but. Now, he's going to give us a comparison. So let's read beginning with verse 7. Read through verse 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice what he says. He says that whatever used to be important to me, he says, I counted that as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, everything, I count everything at loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, Paul's secret for having joy in unfavorable circumstances was not what he knew, but instead it was who he knew. And he describes it by saying the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. I I love that phrase, that Jesus is of surpassing worth. Let me illustrate it like this. You see, my wife and I have a song. Now, we've had this song as our song since 1969, so we go back a ways. But even to this day, if, if uh, one of us is somewhere and that song comes on a radio or, uh, or something, we immediately you know, speed dial uh, to the other one of us, and, and we don't even you know, hold the phone up and answer the phone, but as soon as uh, uh, the other line answers, we just hold it up to the radio or the speaker so they can hear it, and, and invariably on the other side of the line, what you'll hear is, oh, it's my, our song. You know, we were watching a movie the other day, and all of a sudden the movie ended, and they were running the credits, and the song that played at the end of the movie was our song. Now, Our song is not some romantic ballad or, you know, like a lot of individual songs. Our our song's a a, a 60s rock and roll song. It it was uh, uh, the one hit of a group back then, but it's entitled More Today Than Yesterday. And some of the words simply say this, I don't remember what day it was. I don't remember what time it was. 
All I know is that I fell in love with you, and if all my dreams come true, I'll be spending time with you. And the chorus says, I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. I love you more today than yesterday, but darling, not as much as tomorrow. You see, that was just an expression of our belief that this love that we had, though innocent and simple and basic as it was in the beginning, was something that would, would grow. It would be something that would get better over time, and it, it has. But the reality is this, that there are few things in life that get better over time. But the Apostle Paul says, but Jesus does the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So how does someone come to know Christ? Well, first he he makes this comparison, then he gets into that. He he says, "Now, now let me compare. I've given you my previous resume, now I'm talking about the value of Christ. So let me tell you how I view the comparison." how I view the things that I used to tether my life to, to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he simply says this, I count all this other stuff as rubbish. It's garbage. Now, the reality is this, that the translators are very timid with this Greek word. Uh, and, and the reality is that, that, that it's not really garbage, but that's the cleaned up version of it. I prefer what uh, uh, King James, their version, their translation is. He he says that I count all of this as dung. And that's exactly what you think it means. It's I count it as waste. I count it as excrement. He said, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, everything else is, you can fill in the blank. So if knowing Christ is that valuable, how do we know Christ. Verse 9, Paul says, I am found in him. I'm found in him. There is nothing more important in the whole world than to be found in him, to be found in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are safe. Judgment cannot touch us. The apostle Paul in another place said, there is no condemnation to us that are in Christ Jesus. I am found in him, he says. How how did that happen? Verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own. Now the apostle Paul begins to uh, unpack the, the gospel, in particular the doctrine of justification. He says we need to be righteous, that the only people that are going to go to heaven are going to be righteous people. But we have a problem. There are no righteous people. And so that means that we need an external righteousness. We we need someone else's righteousness. And if we could get that, someone else's righteousness, then maybe we would be okay. So what we need is, in in a theological term, what we need is an imputed righteousness. It's a tremendous concept. You see, you probably didn't use the word imputed this morning, but you probably practiced it. Probably many of you did. Let me, you know, this is how it works for me. After my wife in the morning, 
uh, takes her shower, she goes to the kitchen, makes some coffee, and then she brings it in, a cup of coffee for me, and places it uh, on the vanity next to my sink uh, as I'm getting ready in the morning. It's a precious, sweet gesture that she does. But here's the deal. I don't like coffee, but I drink it. But I don't like, I don't like the taste of coffee. So, so how do I manage to drink it? It's because of something that she does before she brings it to me. She knows that in and of itself, the coffee is not sweet enough for me. So she takes a package of sweetener and she, you know, she places it into the coffee. She imputes it into the coffee. She knows I, just the overall flavor and taste I, I don't like of coffee. So she'll, she'll get maybe some, you know, French vanilla flavoring and pour a little bit of that in there, imputing that flavor into the coffee. Then she brings it to me and I drink it because now it has a sweetness that was not of its of itself. It has a flavor that is not its own. It came from somewhere else. And that's what it means to impute. It, to impute righteousness means that we simply apply something to something else. It comes from one source and is applied to another source. And so if you are a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, that's exactly what happened to you. His righteousness has been imputed to you. His righteousness has been given to you. And notice he says that it's a gift and it's received by faith, and that's the essence of the gospel. John Stott said the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul put it this way. For our sake he made him, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, we, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we have been imputed his righteousness. You see, you're not righteous today because you're watching this broadcast. You're not righteous today because you go to church. You're not righteous because you're a good person or because you do a daily devotional or even because you read the Bible and pray. You're not righteous because of any of those things. You're righteous because of the work of another. And the Apostle Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know the one who has done that for me. I want to know the surpassing greatness of him. And I'll tell you today, there is no greater privilege in all of the world than to know Christ and to be known by Christ. So he says the marks of a true believer are that they worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ, put their trust in Christ and not the flesh. And then he says this one other thing. He said, a true believer wants to know Christ more and more. They're in Christ, but they want to know Christ more. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So getting back to my original question, you know, what is your highest ambition? 
If God the Father were to, to give you the opportunity and he were to say to you, what is it that you want? What do you want? What would your answer be? Would it be success? Would it be good health, a long life? Would it be that you want to be famous? You want to be a great athlete? You want to be rich? I mean, what would you say to that question? Well, we know what the Apostle Paul said, and I would hope that it would be our ultimate answer. He said, I want to know Christ more. That's what I want. I want to know him more. J.I. Packer said, once you realize that your main business in life is to know Christ, most of your problems will fall into place. To know him. So how do I know Christ more? Begin with verse 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the humble calling of God in Christ Jesus. So how do I know Christ more? He gives us two ways. Number one, humbly acknowledge that we have not already arrived. The Apostle Paul uses a double negative. In verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained. Obtained what? I have not obtained a perfect knowledge of Christ. I have not obtained a, a perfect conformity to Christ. So not that I have obtained. And in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. You see, the Apostle Paul is simply recognizing that even at this stage in his life, he has not arrived yet. And that takes humility. You see, the gospel has purged the spiritual and religious arrogance right out of Paul. It's humbled him. You see, I believe that over the entirety of our lives as believers, that we should have a commitment to and a dedication to learning and growing in our knowledge of Christ. We should never stop wanting to know him more. As a matter of fact, the, the apostle Paul, near the end of his life, as he's communicating to some people who are going to come possibly to visit him, in 2 Timothy 4, he's telling them things to bring to him. And he says this thing, bring me the books. Bring me the books. And it's like, Paul, haven't you read enough books already? Are, uh, you, are you still wanting to learn more? And his answer is, yes, there is still more to know about him. I haven't arrived yet. But then he also illustrates to us that we need to passionately pursue a greater knowledge of the Savior. You see, for some people, it may be very easy to acknowledge that they haven't arrived yet, but the problem is that they use that as an excuse not to press on, not to press forward in knowing more about Christ, not to have a passion to know Christ in a more intimate way. But don't do that because that's a mistake. That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is not coasting. He's not saying, I haven't arrived yet, but, hey, you know, that's okay. 
But notice the language in those verses. The language of exertion, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, I'm forgetting and I'm straining. I'm, I, I'm forgetting the things behind. I'm forgetting my faults, but probably more impressively, I, I'm not just forgetting my failures. I, I'm forgetting my accomplishments. I'm not bringing any of that with me. And so I'm forgetting what's behind and I am straining forward. There is exertion. There is passion. I'm going to forget as I run. I'm going to run and forget. And as I run, he says, I have one thing in mind. I love that wonderful little phrase, this one thing I do. You see, Paul was a one thing man. And that one thing was to continually grow in his knowledge of Jesus Christ. So here's an application question for you today. What is the one thing that you can change in order to pursue the one thing that matters most? Did you get that? What is the one thing you can change that will help you pursue the one thing that matters most? And what is the one thing that matters most? What did Paul tell us? It's Christ. So what's the one thing I can change that will help me pursue Christ more? I mean, some areas you might want to consider just, you know, just putting these out there, time. To really know someone, you have to spend time with them. How much time do you spend with Christ in his word, in prayer? How, how much time do you spend to know him? Not only time, you might consider study, you know, study of God's word. How much time is there? But it's not just that. What are the other things that you consume that will help you to focus on Christ and help you to be inspired to know him more? What books do you read? What podcasts do you listen to? There's a wealth of information out there that's, that's, that's so easy to access that will help you to pursue Christ. So consider the areas of time and study, but also relationships. If you want to know Christ more a year from today, here's one thing that you can do. Ladies, find the godliest woman you know. Guys, find the godliest man you know and spend as much time as you possibly can with them. With them, studying God's word, praying together, sharing together, talking together. If you will do that a year from now, you will know Christ more. So what is it? What's the one thing that you can change? Most of us think of change as a series of boxes that, you know, if I'm going to change, I've got to check this and check this and check this and check this. But David Paulson says that one change in one area of your life can change your whole life. Just one change can change your whole life. One step in the right direction can affect the rest of your life. Phyllis and I, my wife, we dated all through high school. 
And then at some point during my freshman year of college, we broke up. And so after uh, school was out that year, I came home to uh, North Alabama and I committed to work at some student camps throughout the summer. And so on a Monday morning, phone rang and it was the camp director asked me where I was. And I said, well, I'm at home. I'm not scheduled to work this week. And he said, yeah, but I need you here. I need you here right now. And so I packed up my stuff, jumped in my car, drove the couple hours or so to where the camp was and pulled onto the campgrounds and, and uh, parked my car and I, I went straight to the gym. And as I was walking into the gym, the door opened and it was Phyllis, my future wife, walking out of the gym. And to be honest with you, I don't even know what we said right there. I, I'm assuming that we were cordial-ish at that point. Well, that night after church, they always would turn the kids loose to go to the canteen, which I never understand, understood. You get them all hopped up on sugar, then send them to the cabin and tell them be good and stay out of trouble. Uh, but I was standing there on this little hillside uh, watching the kids, just keeping an eye on them. And all of a sudden, from my blind side, someone bumps into me and steps on my foot, and they step on my foot really hard. And when I turn to look, it's Phyllis. And this is the conversation that ensued. I looked at her, she looked at me, and then she says, I'm sorry. To which I replied, sorry for what? And then she said, looking at me with those beautiful green eyes, I'm sorry for everything. And this was my response verbatim. Well, if this means we're getting back together, we should probably just go ahead and get married before we break up again. I know, the greatest proposal ever. And before you think, man, that was weak, it worked. Two months later, we were married. And on August 12th of this year, we celebrated our 48th wedding anniversary. You see, she took a step albeit a hard step right on top of my foot. But that step changed both of our lives forever. What's the step that you need to make that could change your life? What's the step that you need to make that will help you to pursue Christ and to pursue a knowledge of him like maybe you haven't had for a while? You see, if your goal, if your ambition in life is like Paul's, to know Christ more, then my prayer for you is that as the Spirit guides you, that you will have the courage to take that one step, to make that one change that will help you to discover or to rediscover the surpassing worth of knowing Christ.